This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello and welcome to Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 13th of October 2022. This is the week that saw more fallout from the recent fiscal event by UK Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. Russia's invasion of Ukraine continued with attacks on the main bridge linking the Crimea to Russia, followed by attacks on Kyiv, and Dame Angela Lansbury died. So this week, we're going to think about the absolute state of the UK government and AI. We'll also see what else we get on to, as always. Um, we've been away for a couple of weeks. In between, the news just keeps getting worse, plumbing new, unanticipated depths of badness and incompetence. Which, of course, brings me to this week's guests. Joining me today, we have Chris Henry, who teaches philosophy and politics at the University of Kent. Hi, Chris. Hello, Simon. A pleasure, as always. <laughs> and uh, Fiona McPherson, who's Professor of Philosophy at the University of Glasgow and President of the British Philosophical Association. Hi, Fiona. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Simon. <laughs> Good to have both of you with us. OK, so let's get to our first item. So um, the news in the UK seems to go from bad to worst, focused on, on problems, many of which are depicted as self-inflicted problems for the new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss and her government, notably the Chancellor, Quasi Quarteng. Um, the latter's fiscal event from a few weeks ago is still causing problems for the UK and others in the financial markets with confidence in our economy seeping away by the minute. People anticipate that to make the books balance, there will have to be a major real-term cuts to public services or a major public U-turn to satisfy not just many commentators, but conservative backbenchers who are worried about losing their jobs at the next election. Um, this obviously has political ramifications that any political scientist or sophologist could discuss, and we might well do so. But one issue that caught my eye, um, which didn't make that many headlines, but I thought was very interesting, is that um, at some point a few days ago, the Lib Dems were thinking of tabling a censure motion to dock both Truss and Quarteng of half of their governmental pay, not their backbencher pay. For Liz Truss, that would be about 38000 For Quarteng, 33750 I understand. Um, the reason given was just sheer incompetence. Um, with the amount that the Bank of England has had to pump into the economy to shore up pensions, for example, um, then you could see why people think they're incompetent. Um, one can see why they'd face whatever political fallout they face, and, and perhaps rightly so. But is it right for their pay to be docked doing a very difficult job? Even if they've made mistakes, I don't think anyone doubts it's, it's very difficult at the moment. Is it a serious idea? this censure motion, or is it just whipping up of populist sentiment? If we start here, where will we end up? Uh, would anyone good bother to come into government again? So we can get on to other things as well. I just wondered, Chris and Fiona, what you thought about that censure motion, first of all? Well, I suppose one thing I would want to know is, it doesn't seem very fair to suddenly dock someone's pay without telling them in advance that this can happen. So I think really the question ought to be, you know, should we have contracts where um, there's a possibility of docking pay? If you just suddenly tell someone, actually, we're docking your pay and that's not sort of been explained to them in advance, that doesn't seem very fair to me. And I think particularly in the case of politics, there's an issue of who gets to judge whether you've done a good thing or a bad thing. 
because the whole the whole point about politics is people have different opinions about what's the best thing to do. A party gets voted in, and then they they do what they think is best. Um, so obviously, at all times, the opposition, or or on at least on on many uh, topics, the opposition is going to disagree and say that the opposition isn't doing a good job. So you know, who would judge this? Would we put it to the Supreme Court? Is that what we want to do, or how would we how would we you know determine this? You know, I imagine Liz Truss says, well, of course, there's this uh, temporary market turmoil, but uh, that was to be expected, although we think it really wasn't, um, uh, or we think that she didn't expect it. But, um, you know, but actually, this is getting us to the right place. So, you know, I'm just making those difficult decisions that we knew I would have to take. Um, so, you know, who, who judges this? And, and was this made plain to these people coming in that their pay could be docked? And, and, and it has to made, be made clear to people what the process is by which you can dock their pay and, and who decides. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we could conceivably, we could conceive of an organisation or a department of, of, of government, um, a bit like the Standards Committee, that would be in charge of, of judging this sort of thing. I, I, I agree with you entirely. This seems to be a posteriori and so sort of prima facie unfair. Um, the, the, the really thorny issue for me in terms of judging what's going on is, um, how do we judge whether or not this is incompetence or exactly what they want to happen? So this is Liz Truss, who, um, came from the Liberal Democrats into the Tory party. Um, she had socialist parents. And so it's clear that she sort of surfs the seas of the political spectrum, um, quite, quite broadly and quite loosely, it seems. I've heard cynical leftists say that actually she's um, she, she's not a Tory at all. She's the most ardent, diehard socialist, and just entering into the Conservative Party in order to sabotage from within. Right? Um, let's assume that she's that's, that's probably not the case, but I do like the idea. Um, maybe it's not incompetence, and maybe if, maybe this is um, purposeful. Um, maybe she is that ideologically committed to this course of action and she fervently believes that it's the case, that there's no mistakes having been made. And if we are to insist that a mistake has been made, we have to judge whether or not the person alleging it's a mistake is qualified enough to do that. So what are the qualifications that the Liberal Democrats in this case have in order to judge whether or not um, a Prime Minister's plan of action will be successful in the long run? Well, the Lib Dems haven't held government uh, in the UK in living memory. I mean, coalition government, sure. Um, I'm sure that they're just as you know highly formally educated as, um, as, as the next Member of Parliament, but I'm not sure how they would go about judging its its incompetence. I mean, on the one hand, I'm not particularly sympathetic to what to what they're doing, but on the other hand, this seems to me just like a political decision, like everything else. Are there problems with the power that executive government holds over the British parliamentary process? Yes, absolutely, I think there are. And um, the phrase "government by." Um, what was a government by armchair that was applied to Tony Blair seems very much the case um, here, here again. It's not clear remotely that Trust has the authority and the mandate to carry this out. But in terms of um, yeah, in terms of incompetence, I'm not too sure that's 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 the case. I think um, I'd, I'd also like to talk just about the last um, question you asked, Simon. Would would anyone good bother to come into government again? I think that's really interesting. We, we've had this discussion in the university sector about VCs and vice chancellor's salaries as well. And it's the idea that um, the level of salary 
that is offered is commensurate with the skill of the person who you want into the job, a sort of meritocracy. And of course, during the during the industrial action over the last few years, one of the very clear messages came out um, that that's just not the case, right? If you've got somebody coming into a job because they desire a very, very large salary, as is the case with um, British VCs and um, I think the Prime Minister, to a certain extent less, it's, you know, underpaid in comparison to the pub, to the private sector, but nevertheless, you know, the governmental salary on top of the standard MP salary is still a high six-figure sum. It's not clear to me that you want that sort of person in your institution because they might not hold to that, and I'm going to sound like a horrible corporate stooge at the moment, um, adhere to the values of that institution. Um, they might, in fact, just be doing it because they're salary chasing. But, um, yeah. Yeah, good. Nice thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that uh, the sense of emotion is, uh, uh, or at least should be taken seriously. I think it's, it, I mean, the sense of emotion itself is just a bit of politicking, I think. Um, and I agree with, with both of you about pay, even though I think that whilst I take the points about, you know, uh, who knows, they may be wanting to do this. And in fact, they might be so extreme that they are perhaps wanting to do it and stir up the markets. I think that that, that itself shows a shows level of, otherworldliness and political extremism that we might describe as incompetence. Um, but I think there's something very interesting about, uh, that's the reason why I asked the, the last question, which you got us on to, Chris. I mean, you know, you mentioned about the universities, but also, I mean, politics and all sorts of areas of public life. So we can think about other sectors like the health service and, and um, emergency services and, and, and so on and so forth both public and quasi-public sphere about, you know, what levels of pay are should be there to attract good people to do these these jobs. Um, because we want good people to do these jobs. Um, and good sometimes means, yes, adhering to the values of the institution or the organisation or whatever it is. But also it's about just, just having the steel to make some difficult decisions in a changing world to ensure the long-term thriving and, and at least survival of the, of the organisation. But, you know, certainly in, in the UK where we're all speaking from, but many other countries as well, there's been quite a, um, a changing ratio, if I can put it like that, between people who get very good salaries, not eye-watering Elon Musk kind of salaries, but just good salaries, uh, and people who are on average salaries or below average salaries. Um, there's, there's been quite a changing ratio. Um, and I suspect that, well, I don't think that's healthy. And I suspect the two of you don't think that's healthy either. So I'm just interested in what, what it takes to attract good people to do the jobs that we, we want filled by good people. Um, and what sort of, as well as pay, what sort of conditions there are. So I go back to Fiona's thought about it just doesn't seem fair if, if uh, we haven't laid out in advance that your pay could be docked by a vote in Parliament or something like that. Um, uh, but I don't know what any of you think about that. Chris, do you want to come back in? Yeah, I mean, so uh, about a decade ago when I was teaching this sort of stuff, um, I came up with or I, I found out that happiness in a, in a society correlates very strongly with your income up to a certain level and then it trails off. And about a decade, that happened to be £66,000. I, I don't couldn't possibly guess what it is now. But after about £66,000, um, other concerns started to make people less happy. And of course, this was... You know, it's not actually the amount of money, but £66,000 was a measure of sort of where you are in the economy and the sorts of concerns that you had. Afterwards, you were starting to think about, you know, the, um, 
the potential that you'd lose such a large amount of money. And so you were sort of game theorying out the risks in your life and the possible to the possibility of either increasing or diminishing your capital. Anyway, so that was the level at which um, you were being you could empirically make the case that a salary should go up um, to that level. And after that, um, there was less so much of a of an empirical um, justification for raising a salary because it wasn't necessarily going to contribute to happiness. Now, of course, that would involve if we were to sort of say that as a society, what do we all want? We, what do we all want? We, well, we want to be happy. We could plausibly say, well, you know, that's a salary that we should all sort of be aiming towards around there. And okay, so maybe there's some sort of meritocratic adjustment, plus or minus, and stuff like that for efficiency. Um, I'm actually not a massive favour of meritocratic um, arguments based upon equality levels, but you know, I can I can conceive that there are other adjustments to be made on that level. But I I just I completely fail to see any justification whatsoever other than sure, uh, sheer Nietzschean uh, will to power for the sorts of salaries that um, that senior government members and, you know, mus- the musks of this world are, are, are drawing. But I wonder if, um, if the, the British population in amongst a sort of um, average, um, sort of a, an average minimum wage conversation, what, what they would think it should be orientated around. Are there any values that we could agree upon? I don't know. It seems to me one set of questions are at that upper end, you know, how much do we want to pay vice-chancellors, right? Because we think that their salaries are are rather large, certainly compared to other people working in their institutions. But whether we need good salaries to attract good people, I mean, I would say something like the case of nurses shows not. I think there are lots of nurses who do absolutely wonderful, extraordinary jobs deeply committed, deeply caring, deeply skilled, um, yet they're paid a pittance. I mean, really a pittance. And when we're talking about nurses' salaries, the question is, are we paying these people enough such that their lives aren't being so adversely affected by the by the paucity of their salary that it stops them being the good person that they that that they are because you know if you are terrified about whether you can feed your child or put on your heating or pay your mortgage bill that's just gone up by 200 pounds a month then you know that that stops you having the mental capacity to i would say probably think very well or as good as you could about about your job so it's one thing to talk about, you know, should VCs earn two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand a year? It's another thing to talk about at the other end. What you know, are we paying people enough to live? And I would say that the answer is no, we're not. <laughs> there are so many now working poor, and the the uh, types of jobs and the number of people who are falling under the working poor because of the lack of salary is just increasing all the time, and it's it's terrifying, and it's terrifying. At this moment, when the economy is is really in in such turmoil, and electricity prices and um, and mortgages are all all rising, it's I, I feel like we're on the the cusp of of something really terrible happening in our society, and the government is is really not helping very much at all. In fact, one might think making it worse in many ways. I mean, Simon's opening comment about this is self inflicted. I mean, that is. I mean, everybody, every commentator that I've read um, about this situation says this is self-inflicted. 
unlike the the crisis of 2008 when um you know the government and the, and particularly the bank of england stepped in at that point um to and made changes that were very helpful but this is a case where those institutions seem to be letting us down and even the bank of england seemed to be letting us down so yesterday there was the news that whilst the head of the bank of england had said that the support for pensions uh, pension funds uh, through supporting gilts would end on friday um the uh, at 5.30 in the morning, someone else in the Bank of England leaked that actually the support would, would you know, don't worry, chaps, the support will continue on if need be. I mean, that kind of flip-flopping and miscommunication from the Bank of England seems terrible, uh, really terrible. Oh, yeah, just no. thoughts from me, Fiona, on, on what you just said. Yeah, certainly the the opening thoughts about nurses. In fact, we could reel off a, a, you know, a range of professional jobs, right? And actually, highly skilled jobs. So, road workers, you know, teachers, you know, uh, you know, which jobs where you'd think, you know, a, a generation ago, you could easily, you know, live a very nice life and have spare money and so on, and pay a mortgage and whatever else. And they're just, you know, anyway, well, you know, the the problems. These people are, are kind of really, really worried. And the question is whether they can actually go into work every day and do a good job. In fact, I saw some interviews with some nurses, basically. Uh, articulating exactly that in the way you you, you spoke about, uh, and then yeah, it's it's very odd about what's going on. I think uh, in high politics at the moment. So I, I mean, I saw Andrew Bailey the interview he gave, and, and uh, well, at least the speech that was reported, and then all the discussion around it. And it seems the Bank of England and the government seem to be playing like a very dangerous game of tennis, where they keep on trying to whack the ball into each other's courts, and the ball is on fire. And I mean, in one sense, you could see why you'd say, look, there's, it's just going to end. It's ending on Friday. That's it. You guys, you pension funds, you've just got to sort it out. Basically, kind of putting the ball back into quasi Quartang's court and say, you've got to be responsible and come up with a budget that's going to calm the markets. Um, but I don't think he is. And if the markets aren't calm, it's going to spell disaster for loads of people. I mean, it's just, you know, um, you know what do you do? Sorry, Chris, I interrupted you. No, no. Um, so I... I'd go, I'd go a bit, bit possibly further uh, than Fiona in, in how, how we describe the government. I mean, the government is, is callous in the way it treats people, I think, at the, the, the very least, because the fact that nurses will work as hard as they do and pick a public sector employee who's had their pay cuts, you know, at will, demonstrates that the profit motive is not, is very obviously not the only working motive for why somebody will do well at their job. And yet, um, all you hear more and more, and explicitly from trusts at the moment is, um, you know, trickle-down economics is the only way to uh, drive growth in a successful economy and, you know, a successful country. Whilst at the same time, you know, nurses fight against um, unionists who say, you know, you should be going on strike to protect your material interests because, you know, self-respect and self, um, you know, self-promotion. You have to take, you have to do that uh, above and beyond your duty to the public sector. And nurses will go, no, you know, our duty to the public is um, exceeds our duty to ourselves, and so we're not going to go on strike. And it's interesting now that you know that discussion is happening more and more. So you see, my 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 point is, you know, just a permanent salute to to the medical uh, staff in general, but. Uh, more specifically, it, it's very clear that in the in the government's face are a whole sectors of workers who are disproving 
this profit motive argument uh, just constantly. What I do find interesting, though, and uh, one one reason why I'm a little hesitant at judging trusts and, and Kwartang's policies based upon what the Bank of England are saying and what sort of um, orthodox financiers are saying is because if I was to think about what some people on the left would would want to do with the political economy, right, and we don't have to think this is not hypothetical when we think about um, how Corbyn put forward his manifesto and how it was roundly lambasted by, again, the same sort of political institutions and economic institutions that are currently lambasting trusses. There is clearly what trusts are called uh, an orthodoxy, a financial orthodoxy. That seems to sort of toe down, down the line. Now, orthodoxies aren't necessarily bad, of course, but is this orthodoxy what we might say good well, what's it done? I mean, we've seen rampant inequality rife in the UK since Thatcher was in, uh, in, in, in governments, and people have been manifestly um, done out of their, you know, what you might, what they might call as a, a, a good life by the financial orthodoxy. So I don't think it is right. And so when those same institutions turn around and say, "Well, we don't like Truss's plans because X, Y, and Z," I go, mm, "I'm not. I'm not sure. Actually, I care what they have to say." Um, what I'd be interested in is, you know, what are the actual effects? What, what's, what's the effects of the intended plans? And are they going to be good? Um, and then we can sort of take the other financial institutions advice with a pinch of salt. I've not actually read that much about what they want to do, commenting from, you know, other outside sources. I have my own opinions on trickle down economics, and uh, I'm not particularly favorable to the argument. But um, at least what I do quite like, and this is the only time I will ever give ground to Truss and Kwartang, I think, is that they are trying something new. I'm not, and I just question, you know, why we're holding their positions to account and on what grounds uh, we are. So I was thinking about, you know, this thought about to what extent can we think that they've made mistakes or done something wrong as opposed to disagree with their ideology and where they're they're going to, just as just as you've sort of explained there, Chris? Um it seems to me that if we if we if we had to find the evidence for them doing something wrong or not being good as opposed to just disagreeing with a policy, I mean, one thing is that they've reversed their own policy within days of of putting it forward, right? So the the uh, the the cut to the top rate tax, uh, you know, was was undone, and it looks like more of the policy is going to be undone. The um, Chancellor and Liz Truss both said that one of the problems with their mini budget was um, that they hadn't paved the way with the market. So they hadn't had the appropriate discussions with the markets to explain in advance what they were doing and why. So they themselves seem to admit that was a mistake. They clearly had a lack of communication with the Bank of England and they should have been, you know, really working with the Bank of England in advance of releasing that statement to explain what was going on so that the bank was was prepared. Um, And also they went against orthodoxy by not publishing the Office of Fiscal Studies report on what would be the outcome and the likely anticipated um, outcome Uh, and uh, prediction by them of how that would affect the economy. So those seem clear ways in which what they did was either, you know, they they themselves said, oh, we should have done that, or they've undone their own policy, or there are things that just seem really wrong about it. Um, As for the, well, they're trying something new, and what do we think of their values and their aims? I personally find it 
those values rather abhorrent. The the thought of giving those who are doing just fine further money into their pockets when there are people that are really struggling, really struggling is well, I, maybe I don't believe in trickle down economics. I don't think that it 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 works. Um, but I also think that there just has to be direct support for people when they're struggling in the way to the extent and on the scale that that, that they are. Yeah. It's just some thoughts for me. I think actually everything you listed, Fiona, I think is right. They are mistakes. Although I was running through them as you were as you were speaking. And I think they're all mistakes with how they paved the way and how they communicated what was going on, not the policies themselves. I mean, so the, the but but I think we all share the same view. Who knows? There might be some trust and quarting. Uh, fans out there apologies we might about be to burst your bubble but you know there are other podcasts available i think all <laughs> of us are, uh, are against the policies them, themselves in various ways i mean something that strikes me um just as a basic point ignoring the 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 kind of details of it is they want to go for a growth agenda okay and actually they're you know here a bit like chris at least they're trying something new right against some some orthodoxy because uh, i mean i think i have particular views about growth and i think i would want that to be a kind of let's say a green growth to use a kind of slogan here um, and particular things that you would want to invest in and not invest in or disinvest in but what strikes me as odd is that so far and i don't see any indication that they're going to go beyond this is that they're using proxies for growth and investment rather than targeting growth and investment themselves. So what they're doing is trying to increase the money for companies and individuals to spend money as they wish, which you can see as part of you know, what they want to do if you're on the right or the centre-right of politics. But really, if you really want to go for growth, what you do is you you know, release some money, but you do it in a very targeted way. There are rules about how one spends that money. Or there are kind of incentives, be it sticks or carrots, in the tax system to say, you know, if you invest extra X percent over the next three years, then you then you pay less tax or something like that. Right? Then you're going to see more investment in machinery and skills for people and whatever else you you need to have to for growth, rather than anything around proxies on just people spending power. I mean, I think that's the surely that's one of the big lessons of the 1980s, where in fact the UK using Scottish oil, Fiona, uh, able to, you know, had a basically a huge windfall. And we basically spent it rather than a lot on infrastructure, we spent it on tax breaks, <laughs> um, rather than, you know, direct investment. Um, and it strikes me as, as whatever one's politics, as it were, it seems like a kind of basic flaw in the economic policy. And if you want to go for growth, don't go for proxies, go for the thing you're interested in. I say that all the time at the university as well, as Chris sometimes knows, right? <laughs> but that's a different that's a different kettle of fish. Um, but particularly when those proxies are fueling and known to fuel inflation, which you know, we we have we have you know if it was said we all know that inflation is um, has been you know rising over the past six months, at least six months. Um, uh, one of the interesting. Features, I think, of the debate between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss was uh, Rishi Sunak's focus on, well, whatever we do for growth has to be, we have to be very careful because um, some things that you can do to promote and encourage growth lead to inflation. And actually, our biggest problem at the moment is inflation. It seems seems that the measures that have been taken are all things which 
um, have actually uh, fueled fueled inflation quite quite clearly. So, I mean, just the rise in interest rates and um, you know, and how that affects people's mortgages. I mean, it's just just clearly clearly done that. And I think Ian Blackford raised a, a, his question that the uh, Prime Minister's questions was, um, you know, since Liz Truss had come into office, what was the what what was the average monthly increase in payback on people's mortgages? And uh, I'm trying to, trying to remember the sum. Can one of you remember? A few the... hundred. It's certainly gone up in the last three or four months. Average mortgage had gone up by about two percent or something. So that would be. Roughly yep. 300, 400 quid a month. Yeah, I think my the figure that sticks in my head was 400 and something pounds, maybe 425 or something. Um, shocking. Yeah. Well, listen, the, the, the two of you have convinced me. Let's dock them some pay for being incompetent, shall we? <laughs> um, listen, let's leave it there and uh, we'll see you in the next part when I hope it will be us speaking, but you may not be able to tell. <laughs> And welcome back. Uh, a quick advert in case you haven't heard. I also have another podcast series called Philosophy Gets Schooled. It's aimed at school students and teachers talking through lots of philosophical topics on school curricula with a group of teachers uh, who come from Association of Philosophy Teachers, which the British Philosophical Association is currently busy setting up. Um, just this week, I've been publishing some new episodes on the ontological argument and on natural law and situation ethics. And just last night, I was recording another episode on philosophy of religious language, which I hope will come out very soon. Um, feel free to check it out. Philosophy Gets Schooled is available wherever you get your podcasts, just like this one that you're listening to right now. Okay, so let's go on to our next discussion, and that's about artificial intelligence. And there's been a few uh, news reports about artificial intelligence in the last few days. Um, Chris, let's start with you. You raised an interesting story for us that did not involve Joe Rogan and Steve Jobs. It, it, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, they're, they're, they're simulacra, maybe. Yeah, so recently a, a fictional podcast interview was released by a Dubai-based voice synthesis company that simulated Joe Rogan and Steve Jobs having a, having a conversation and um, they intended this, I think, as the first episode of, of a series that they're going to call uh, Podcast.ai, which they're using as a vehicle in order to sell their synthesis program. Um, so in my, uh, my, my alter ego as a, as a headshot photographer, I, um, I've been exposed to and sort of encouraged to, to use image simulation programs as well. And they're starting to become really, really terrifyingly good um, to the extent that you can type in in natural language an object and it will create it. And then you can press recreate and it will come up with 20 different versions of it. So you could type in, you know, um, a man sitting on a red chair um, up would come 10 versions of that. And then you go, no, okay, woman sitting on a red chair and it would come up, right? And they are photorealistic and you can start doing this with, with videos as well. So we're now past the, the sort of the mid-noughties uh, computer effects, avatar-esque, slightly dubious, bandy-limbed images where you can obviously see that things are 
the things of VFX. And we're now past the, okay, realistic looking VFX. And we're now on to actual in the moment generated as we speak VFX and sound effects, um, which presents lots of interesting philosophical problems, I think. So the first one is a sort of return to the Trump era, post-truth, fake news kind of um, kind of things. So we've got to start worrying more and more, I think, about when videos are made by um, actors who don't necessarily want the best for our country, about our politicians talking about, you know, terrible policies that just came out. Maybe, in fact, the Truss and Kwartang that we've been listening to over the last month aren't the real Truss and Kwartang. Maybe it's the Russian deep state trying to ruin the British economy. Of course, it has. They haven't, but you could feasibly see, like you know, a Twitter video make going the rounds that has been made by the Russian deep state, and the government has to go into overdrive and rubbish it. But how would we know? Um, you know, lots of Descartes, you know, first through third meditation sort of stuff there. Um, secondly, there's a really interesting uh, debate about whether or not we own our own public image in the face of where it can be so easily copied. So if I go out and take a photograph in in Canterbury um, down the street and somebody objects to it, I can take out a little card that I'm carrying around with me with the law written on it that says, actually, you don't own your public image. And as long as I don't sell it for profit, I can legitimately take a photo of you in public. And there's no, there's no public recourse um, that you can take out against me. But in Germany, that doesn't exist. And so if somebody objects to uh, me taking a photo of them in public, I'm obliged under law to delete it. In fact, I think it goes further than that. And I have to ask permission for it. So it's not in your for, for image. We need somehow to, I think, agree amongst us in the public sphere. And I'm not saying that's going to be easy about how this is going to work. With digital images more real than real life um, videos. Uh, I think that's a big problem, which leads on to the third problem, I think, which is the role of governance in, um, in artificial intelligence and the extent to which um, this is at the moment almost a completely unregulated uh, sector. So when it comes to, to audiovisual things, there are currently no laws, as far as I know, that say you can't release a video of a public figure that announces a policy so egregious that it's going to get them into trouble or horrendously embarrass them. It's still covered under defamation uh, laws and things like that, but um, but I think there are two categories there, the former of which is not regulated. But then the second one is about how we use artificial intelligence, audiovisual stuff to make decisions in, in, in the public setting. There's actually something that um, a colleague at, at Kent is working on. They've got a new UKRI Future Leaders uh, Scholarship on the, on the, the legal governance frameworks of um, public decision making in the advent of artificial intelligence. And the reason why I think this is important, just to, just to spell out briefly, I think one, one of the reasons why this is important, at the moment, if I make a decision, if, I, um, you know, if I'm the, let's say, a mayor of a town with some executive authority and I pass a law that um, changes the bus routes or something like that, um, I'm held to account based upon that, uh, based upon the extent to which a jury judges whether or not uh, my... I thought that that action would go so far and the effects, the scope of the effects that it has in the public life and whether or not it does. Right. And it's sort of located down to my personal decision. But, for example, if I contract a company to put in place a, an AI that has a net 
that sort of programs where the buses go automatically and directs them to whatever route is the most effective. That decision-making is left out of my hands and it's put into that artificial intelligence. Now, I could plausibly be punished or held to account rather if that bus system then starts doing lots of weird things because I'm the one who's contracted that system. But I haven't made the buses do that thing. And do you hold to account the programmer of that system or the shareholders of that system? It's no longer clear who's uh, where the regulatory standard should target. So I think there are three really, really um, important uh, issues that come up as a result of this. That's great. Thanks. Thanks very much, Chris. I've got some thoughts uh, or just an extension on, on some of them. But Fiona, do you want to come in first? Because uh, you think a lot about philosophy of mind and, and all. I do. So Chris has really been focusing on the ethical implications of this technology. And uh, there's so much to, to think through here. I like the question about sort of who who is responsible when you use an AI to do something. And for me, in the case where uh, someone like a mayor has decided that the buses will be determined by the AI system, I don't see why the responsibility wouldn't lie with the mayor. The mayor has decided to use that system. If the mayor doesn't know how it works, then why on earth is he deciding to use that system to to um, make the you know, run the buses. You know, all the time we use technology as a tool, as a way of doing things, and we take responsibility for it. Um, so, um, you know, just think of your camera, right? Your camera is a tool uh, that people use to take photos and often create very beautiful artistic photos. When cameras were first invented, people said things like, well, that's the end of uh, painting as a medium of art because, of course, now we have these cameras, we can just get accurate pictures of the way the world is and, you know, that's the death of art. And of course, now we would look back on that statement and think it was utterly ridiculous. We would think, no, no, cameras just became a new tool for artists to use to create images in in, in particular ways. Um, and I would see the same of, of an AI that was um, running the way the buses would, would work. It's just a new way of, you know, you might have used spreadsheets before, now you're using this AI, but if you don't think your spreadsheets work or if you don't think the AI works or will do a good job or you don't investigate it thoroughly enough to find out, then I think you are responsible. I suppose one bigger question that AI raises is that is the black box question and which makes this a much harder problem than the, than the spreadsheet problem, which is um, with AI systems, it is often the case that we cannot fully explain how it is that they're working, what biases they, they incorporate because of just the vast complexity of the internal workings. But if we have evidence that suggests that those systems are nonetheless doing a better job than we could have done otherwise, we are faced with this tricky problem of whether to use them or not. So this, this gets raised in the medical sphere. So suppose you can um, put various factors about a patient into an AI system, about their um, who they are, perhaps their genetic makeup, yeah, you know, pictures of scans they've had, and this uh, system can tell you accurately, more accurately, let's say, than any doctor could at present, you know, what, what's wrong with the person, what treatment they should use to be used it. Uh, the, the, you might think, well, well, why not? This sounds like a great system. But we don't know what biases are built into that system and, um, you know, does it end up actually discriminating against 
certain groups of people and recommending treatment that isn't appropriate for certain groups of people. So there are that is that's the extra special problem, if you like, that AI brings. But that doesn't get over our responsibility of using it. Right? In in choosing whether to use it, we have to be appreciative of those very problems and and continue to to monitor their uses and, and try and detect bias and detect, you know, maybe if I was the mayor and I wanted to use the system to run the buses, I would say, okay, but we have to be monitoring very closely the outputs of that so that if it starts to go haywire, we can intervene very quickly and, mm. and sort things. Can I just intervene on, on this one then? Because the, in fact, that was the one, because it was the third one that, that Chris rent us with, and that was the one that I was thinking a lot of. So I know that there's quite a lot of thoughts going in at the moment with AI and self-driving cars. And of course, what's interesting, I mean, Fiona, you raised that that interesting extra special issue about, you know, what's going on in the in the in the black box. And what's what's also kind of become apparent is it's not going to be an all or nothing affair. It's not that we'll suddenly go from having no AI cars to having fully automated cars you just sit in. It's going to be like the Jetsons or something like that. I don't know. Um, there's going to be a kind of graduation across a kind of a generation of cars. The cars will be able to do certain things, but not do other things. And that's kind of interesting. Um, and I suppose that the, the issue with self-driving cars, is slightly different from the mayor. So in, in the case of the mayor, as Chris presented it, there's, there's the choice of you know, using uh, the AI to decide the bus routes and which buses to deploy or not. Let's think about cars, but in fact, you could make the, the, the mayor case a little bit more, more elaborate. So in the case of cars, thinking about who's responsible, is it the driver who gets in the car that then, for some reason, has an accident? So it's that, it's that one case that then is monitored to tell us about AI, but hey, you've injured or indeed killed a pedestrian or whatever you've done. Or is it the company? that's 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 putting these cars on the market and in fact it's it's in a situation where thinking about the mayor it's not as if they they can choose or not perhaps these are the only this is this is now that the standard right in the industry so perhaps if you want to get a car all you can do is get get one of these automatic cars i mean perhaps there's some some old style self-driving cars right but they might be unsafe for other other reasons because they're very old so some interesting issues there then about, and I know that that's something that's been discussed quite a lot by computer scientists, legal theorists, and indeed philosophers. So about um, about who in these situations is responsible and what the programming should look like. So a quick advert, if there are any students out there or, or teachers of school students or anything, right? If you think, oh no, what kind of job can philosophers have in the future? There's a huge amount of stuff going on here in the AI space and big data space. And they need clear thinkers like philosophers to come in and, and actually kind of talk their way through all of these issues. Anyway, that's just one thought that, that occurred to me on this on this third thing Chris raised. Um, yeah, there's an organisation called 10,000 Hours, which I, which I want to give a shout out to because they, um, they sort of publicise jobs in AI ethics and socially useful, socially helpful jobs sort of around philosophy and um, for people who like thinking about philosophical sorts of things. Um, but who might find job uh, jobs might find getting jobs as a result quite difficult. So yeah, I think the fact I, I'm beginning to regret the example that I gave because it, it it's 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 quite it's quite an individual aspect. I think the self driving cars is probably a better example because Simon's. I think you're exactly right, and I mean I know from experience when I I recently bought a car 
And um, modern cars have to now have a whole heap of safety things as a result of European legislation, including um, cruise control with low speed follow and sort of cameras everywhere that detect oncoming traffic and automatically stop the car and things like that. Right. And one of the interesting side effects for that is that it makes the bump in the middle of the windscreen with the uh, wing with the rear view mirror absolutely huge. So you can't see out of the side of the car, which is in itself a safety concern anyway. But what it dem- what it <laughs> the other thing that it demonstrates is that yeah, we're sort of thrown, and I'm thinking more not necessarily of like Aristotle's view of technology, but like Heidegger's view of technology. We're kind of thrown into a world in which we must use technological apparatuses to this to the and and the fact that like they govern the world in which we live and that we experience at the same sort of time, and we can't really get away from this. So the fact that there is that there is this legislation that governs the safety apparatus in a car, even in a very low level sort of minor AI car like my Honda Jazz, means that we can't get away from this. And this is a really live issue about who governs, uh, who's responsible if that were to go wrong. And I crash because I didn't see a car coming out of my blind spot and the cameras around me that I'm supposed to be able to rely upon in order to sense these sorts of things fail as well. And yeah, I just... I, I don't know the answer to that because I don't think the contemporary, the, the sort of standard traditional liberal personal responsibility argument is going to be sufficient for addressing collective decision making um, or networked or embodied decision making like like that at the moment. Um, and I don't think that we, I don't think we even have the language at the moment to talk about a collective decision that is made taking into account both artificial intelligences and individual intelligences. I mean, I suggest a word like, you know, uh, Deleuze popularized um, the, the, the concept of assemblage, um, which is just, you know, def- which is basically the idea of defining a set, any set in which one or more different sets sort of also operate as a, as a functional unity. And then having taken that definition, you can sort of hold, you can see whether or not that is responsible for the things that it is supposed to do. But that is very much a different sort of possible legal framework to the humanist liberal one that we've got at the moment, where the individual is the sort of default moral agent, I suppose. I'm wondering whether the self-drive cars really raise fundamentally different issues in this case. I was just thinking about an ordinary car, you know, there are cases where the brakes fail on your car and you crash, let's say. You know, how do we determine whether you're at fault? Well, you would want to look at, did you do all the things a reasonable person would do to maintain your car appropriately? Did, so in the case of self-driving cars, you're going to say, well, did you get the cameras checked as per the prescribed checking interval and so on and so forth? Um, was there a problem with the, you know, do we blame the car manufacturer because we think maybe the type of car that they produced had some particular problem with the brakes? You know, did the car manufacturer do due diligence and so on? Um, and then in the face of this calamity of the brakes failing, did you do everything you could um, that a person could do to try and avoid the accident and so on? So you can see how the various parts break down when thinking about an ordinary car. And I think that in self-driving cars, the same will be true. So there'll be instances where maybe you weren't paying the sort of attention you should and you had a crash that you could have, you know, a reasonable person could have avoided. There'll be cases where 
uh, you know, the cameras in the car are not working and, and that's that's not your fault or, or maybe you should have got them checked more regularly and then there'll be cases of the actual sort of technology. And as long as that technology is one that the government or the legal system or, what uh, you know, whoever has sanctioned and said it's okay to use this technology, then um, there'll be various kinds of issues that fall to the makers of that technology. So I think we're we're in an assemblage world already just with uh, traditional <laughs> traditional cars there are issues that need to be particularly thought through with respect to the new technology but it's not isn't it doesn't feel like a, f- a fundamentally different kind of shift in this case yeah nice nice actually actually I'm, I'm my mind's whirring and getting worried because in fact it just happens my car's in for an MOT today so <laughs> <laughs> I wonder wonder what things they're finding out not that I've got any advanced supervision <laughs> car. That's a, one, yeah. one of the things I wanted to talk about was not just the um, ethical issues that this Rogan versus Jobs interview raised, but just issues about what's going on and, and is there anything interesting going on in that in the uh, in the production of that um, fake interview between uh, Rogan and Jobs. So. When you look at it in the round, in the whole, it seems this extraordinary thing that you could apparently have this conversation between, I don't know whether Rogan and Jobs ever met in real life, but let's suppose that they didn't. You know, you could have this apparent conversation between two people who never met and it sounds like the people and they say the sorts of things in the sort of manner and style that those people would have said. Does it produce anything of interest? Does that conversation yield anything of interest, of insight and so on? So I I listened the whole way through to the the conversation and I was thinking also about the case that's been in the news recently of Ada, who's a robot that gave testimony uh, to a House of uh, Lords uh, committee. Uh, Ada is a robot, but she looks you know, somewhat, you would never, you would never mistake her for a human, but she looks humanoid, um, and she says she's an uh, apparently she's a robot artist who creates art, and she also talks about uh, herself and who she is and what she is, and um, and talks about AI technology. And in both cases, you can see why people sort of get this effect of, well, this is very cool. A robot is talking to us and telling us things, but when you pick apart the different elements of what's going on it becomes, I think, less exciting and less magical. And I think that the magic comes when you put all those things together and then it's the magic really is in the human perception of what's going on rather than really what's going on. So if you think of the um, Rogan and Jobs interview, there is the reproduction of the voices of the people. So that's, you know, that is, that's very impressive that people can do that but not in and of itself hugely interesting in, in my book, uh, you know, an interesting technological challenge to be able to do that. And of course, adds a huge amount of realism to you, the listener. But hey, I mean, you know, would you, what if it was just a written transcript that was produced of this interview? That would seem instantly much less exciting. And then, of course, there's a question of, well, how do they generate what is said by each person? Um, do you, you know, you know, to create this apparent interview? Um, so, you know, I don't think um, I couldn't find anything about how they actually did that in this case. And then there's the: Do we learn in, anything interesting, or is, it, is there anything interesting that's being said by in these conversations? And uh, so, when um, I was looking at uh, the Rogan Jobs interview, the sort of most interesting thing that that was said 
least on a philosophical level, was Jobs said something like, you know, modern computers are cool but scary. And um, I thought, uh-huh, that's really not a, 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 any great insight. And likewise, when Ada gave the testimony to the House of uh, Lords Committee, she almost said exactly the same thing, which struck me as hilarious. She said, um, AI is a threat, but an opportunity. And that was what the headlines were, really, of what she said and listening to what what she said. That that was the you know, the most uh, the most insightful thing that she actually managed to say. Um, so, you know, do does it help us if these artificial conversations uh, say things like that? Absolutely not. We all know that <laughs> these things are interesting, cool, provide opportunities, but at the same time, they come with dangers and threats. So. I, f- I worry that we get lured into the combination of the voice sounds right, it looks quite humanoid, it seems to have these interesting things to say based on previous putting together previous corpuses of, of texts and so on in the right way. But actually, do we, is it, you know, it, the, the, these cases raise all these ethical worries because, because of the magic of all those things coming together. But actually, are they really of interest? Do we really, do we really... Do we really pay much attention to 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 what's going on in these cases? The evidence so far would say not much. Whether in the future we get more insight or more interest, what if Ada had said, "For God's sake, do not build any more robots or AI because this is leading to human disaster." Would we pay attention? Um, you know, yeah. The, it's interesting to think about what might come about in the future, but at present, I think we are still very much at the at the beginning of this technology. Can, can I be a little bit more skeptical than, than than even possibly that? I mean, I wonder if it's um, I wonder if it's not notable that Ada didn't say that precisely because she didn't say that, right? What if Ada was thinking that? Uh, oh my God, don't build any more. Um, or ha ha ha. I'm currently planning a factory somewhere off in the distance that no one can discover, building lots of me, uh, so that there's going to be a massive Ada army, and I'm going to put on this cute little face, and you're not going to realise it. I mean, that's always the possibility, right? Um, which is why the the discussion of the technological singularity, right, the, the the stage at which artificial intelligence becomes hard AI and capable of reproducing, is is of such philosophical note, and in and both for philosophers and uh, sci-fi writers as well. Um, I think maybe it, the fact that conversation seems to be fairly banal, though, is a symptom itself to be um, observed from a sort of maybe cultural theory aspect. I mean, why is it that when we discover such revolutionary technology as, you know, visually lifelike simulacra of important people, they have such banal conversations? would one not hope to live in a world in which that was to be the case they would have like astonishing conversations where they reveal answers about the mind universe and everything that we because of our limited computational power are unable to think about or the computational speed allows them to run logic at such a speed that it would take us a thousand years to do but actually they rewrite the monodology with with corrections you know in in half a minute. And yet what they what what seems to be the case is yeah, they have banal conversations that you could listen to in the background in half an hour whilst you're eating your cornflakes. Other cereals are also available. Um, I think that's astonishing. 
and a real letdown as well, but also philosophically interesting, right? I suppose we would face the black box problem again, though. So if, you know, one of these creations said something, you know, given that you can't run through all that logic that would take a thousand years <laughs> for a human to do, how do you know whether to, uh, you know, how do you know whether to believe what this this thing says? Um, and also, I don't think that, you know, certainly in the, at least, at the very least, I would be happy to say that in their current form, these machines are not thinking. They're just chopping bits of text together in in ways that are programmed. So there's no meaning behind this. There's no insight behind this where we use insight in the way that humans have insight. <laughs> um, there's, there's a chopping up of text in various ways. And if we did find some of that meaningful, it would be because we ourselves appreciated that that the, the meaning in those words and took there to be something important in and of itself in those words rather than attributing it to the to the creation that was producing the, the words. I actually have a bit of a vested interest in in this because um in, in pre precisely that Fiona, because I, I have a condition called uh, verbal aphantasia. Um so I don't have an internal monologue uh, or a voice in my head at all. It, there's kind of just silence, right? And so um, I'm unable to be introspective in the say in the way that you know I think about the things that I think in my head, uh, and I require externalizing that with either um, people on a podcast or you know through writing or students or something like that. And so, weirdly, I guess I feel <laughs> do I feel a certain um, closeness with these AIs who uh, don't have that sort of voice inside the head. Uh, and do act in the world exactly, Fiona, as you just described. Whereas I totally appreciate that other people who do have that voice and do have that sort of conversation with themselves might might differentiate themselves with them. But when you use the word meaning there, there's no meaning. What, could you explain maybe what, what you meant, meant by meaning there? So... First of all, I think, so I actually work on uh, aphantasia as a topic of my research. Um, okay, I'm going to send you an email. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think that you, you, as someone who doesn't have an inner voice, uh, I think you still think, I still think you um, have thoughts that have meaning and so on. Um, so it's very, you know, the topic of, of meaning is very difficult, um, is a very difficult one. So when I utter words and grasp their meaning uh, or think thoughts and and think about what I'm thinking about <laughs> you know I have an appreciation or understanding of what those words mean and um, so uh, you know if I talk about um, wanting chips for tea I know what chips are and I know what my tea is and so on <laughs> you know I, I have an appreciation of what it is that I'm saying whereas um, if you record words on a tape recorder and press play, the words come out the tape recorder, but the tape recorder has no appreciation of what chips are, or what dinner is, and so on. So there's a clear distinction between what I do when I'm thinking about having chips for tea and what a tape recorder does when the words I'm having chips for tea come out the tape recorder. And then when you have computers and robots, um, we can sort of ask on which side of that divide do they fall. and um, I think they clearly fall on the tape recorder side of things. And of course, there's you know, a vast amount of philosophical work gone on discussing what is meaning, what is it to grasp meanings. There are very different theories of that. Um, you know, there's a, a huge amount to be said there. But um, 
to the extent that we grasp the distinction between what goes on when I'm thinking or saying in an understanding way, um, uh, I'm having tips for tea and there isn't when a, a tape recorder uh, produces the very same sound. I think we grasp that distinction. My my sense is that computers fall on the side of the tape recorder, at least at present. Maybe forever. It's that's one of the that's one of the deep and tricky questions. Is uh, yeah, how how do we how how you know what what makes that difference and and how would we on any occasion tell that 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 difference was there? Great. Listen on that very fundamental question. Uh, let's leave things there. I think I, perhaps I should just say to the listeners that halfway through um, the pod today, I replaced one of our guests with an AI. Uh, and you need to decide which one it was. <laughs> we should draw things to a close. And thanks, uh, thank Fiona and Chris for both coming on. So, Chris, thanks for thanks for coming on and appearing today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Fiona, thanks to you as well. Thank you. In the um, words of Steve Jobs, it was cool but scary. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to you for listening. Um, All being well, we'll be with you soon for another scary episode of Philosophy Takes On. Thank you.